All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker, and with me today, I'm excited to have my friend, Bill Brewster on. Bill, how are you doing? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Yep. Hey, let me start the way I do every podcast, and that's uh, kind of by pitching you. You know, I've been swapping thoughts with you on Twitter for, I'd say, like the past 18 months, two years. And what I can say is I've really enjoyed swapping thoughts with you. You know, you're a really sharp investor. Uh, and I think one of the cool things is when you have something that is valuey that you know people are going to really dunk on you for investing in, you know, uh, like the stock we're going to talk about today, Q-Rate, where a lot of people <laughs> think the melting ice cube, you're willing to just say, hey, I know people are going to hate on this, but I'm here. I'm willing to take a big swing at it. And I think I'm going to be right. So, you know, I always can respect someone who does that. And, uh, you know, it's just been a lot of fun talking to you. So thanks for coming on the pod and thanks for all the correspondence. I appreciate it, man. I enjoy talking to you too. Uh, I just hope that this swing uh, is at least, um, let's not a strikeout, right? A foul <laughs> ball at the worst case, but we'll see. Hopefully a single or a double, but. Uh, That's right. Hey, that intro out the way, let's, uh, before we get started talking Q-rate, let's talk a little bit about your background. You know, how'd you, how'd you come to get into investing? So I was uh, at a bank, uh, BMO Harris Bank. I underwrote uh, commercial loans and um, I had sort of like the family situation that uh, I had an uncle that died and it, it uh, let's see, for lack of a better term, it made the importance of understanding what I'm doing investing much more important than uh, understanding underwriting loans at a bank. Mm -hmm. And I had spoken to my wife um, about it over, you know, the years that sort of I thought that this might be an issue. But then when my uncle passed away, it really changed the uh, the math behind everything. And by then I had gotten my CFA designation and she sort of said, like, I know that this is what you're passionate about. Um, why don't you give it a, a run? And it's been about four years. I think I've probably been like quasi competent for two of them. Um, and you know, we'll see if I'm, I'm just competent enough to touch hot stoves here. You know, it's, it's funny. Like as I, every year as an investor, I'll go back and look at something I looked at or wrote or took notes on a year or two before. And I'll be like, I mean, what, what was that guy thinking? Like that guy, was, he was, <laughs> like, who was this man? Like, why did this man think he should be investing? And, uh, you know, it's all about learning and stuff. So I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one there. Yeah, no, I think, uh, and the other thing is like things that I guess I thought that I knew, I, I didn't even have a clue. And and now I wonder, you know, now that I think I know things, am I just the same guy sitting here not knowing anything? I mean, I think it's a constant evolution and trying to figure out where you're wrong. Yeah. The other thing I, I, I will say on this, not to get like too reminiscent, but a lot of times, particularly with Warren Buffett quotes, you know, I hate that people or the, the Twitter accounts who all they do is post Warren Buffett quotes and like somehow they get 100,000 followers. I'm like, this dude is just like, pulling it. but you know, every, every now and then uh, I'll be thinking about something or learning something and I'll stumble on a Warren Buffett quote. You know, I, I started reading Warren Buffett in like when I was 17 or something, right? And I'll stumble on a note quote. And I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, at the time I knew this was smart, but like the, the resonance will really strike me at some point. So, yeah. Yeah, man, I, I listened to his, the, whoever, Euclidean Capital or whatever, whoever did all the podcasts, I listened to him over and over again. And I, I hear completely different things when I listen to him now than when I used to. I just, I'm like, oh, this guy wasn't, he was saying what he was saying. I just actually didn't understand the words coming out of his mouth. And I was convinced I did, which is scary, but yeah, it's neither here nor there. 
Uh, so uh, just a little bit more. Why don't we talk a little bit more about your investing style before we hop into Q-Rate? So, you know, we, we were talking before, I know you had been into airlines and you kind of sold those heading into the crisis, uh, maybe a little bit during the crisis as well. I know right now, Wells Fargo, Q-Rate, which you're going to talk about it, are big positions. I think we've swapped thoughts on cable quite a bit. So just kind of like what what type of investor you consider yourself? What do you, you, you kind of wake up in the morning and look at for the most part? Uh, I try to stick to things that I think I understand. I tend to gravitate, I think, to infrastructure, like at the core. Um, I think that I, you know, I, I love to read whatever about these SaaS companies and whatnot. The problem is I just fundamentally don't understand what they look like in 10 years and how they're going to compete against each other. And I get a much better sense, like Berkshire is a big position. Maybe it's a little bit of a cushion uh, if I'm like as honest as possible with myself. But the other side of that is like, I really, really understand the utility business over there. I understand BNSF. I understand how they're funding it. And I don't think, like I have problems uh, with some of the assets like many people do, right? But I also understand why a lot of these assets are going to be there for a very, very long time. I feel similarly about cable. Um, I keep trying to figure out the way that 5G disrupts cable. And I keep coming back to the idea of like selling the wireless companies goods to so that they can say that they're uh, deploying 5G could be a good business, but like actually implementing and going through all the permitting and just all the pain in the butt that's going to go with 5G combined with the fact that I can't get uh, any report that, t- that gives me confidence that if it was a downpour, I could actually get my internet. Yeah. And the idea of, of living in my home and having like a direct TV experience with my internet is, is a non-starter. Yep. So uh, until that stuff is solved, like I think I understand cable pretty well. Um, I would say like, I'm just looking at my portfolio. Transdime is a a seven and a half percent position right now for me. Um, you know, charters 10, um, like Wells is six ish IAC and match together are six Disney's five. So like, I don't know. Those are, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, a, a wide array of sort of what I think I understand, but IAC and match are sort of probably the exception to what's normally in the, in the portfolio. But uh, I think I understand match long term, and I know I like the guys at IAC. So that's sort of I bought it in March, and I just sort of knew it was cheap. And it's one of those I'll probably hashtag never sell. No, look, I mean match. Uh, one of the things I kick myself on is one of the first things I posted on the blog was I, I met my wife on uh, a match competitor, right? And uh, before I met my wife, I was very familiar with the uh, the match products, if that makes sense. <laughs> And yeah. you know, I, one of the posts I posted on the blog was when Match was at like 18. I was like, look, I get they haven't solved monetization, but like everyone I know uses Tinder and like this, the, the mode on this product, you know, the, the flywheel effect is absolutely mammoth and they're, they're going to figure this out. And at the time, I actually thought the answer was advertising, not like kind of gameplay monetization. But, you know, that business is one. It is, it is very hard to disrupt uh, one of these dating apps once they get started. And that management team is so focused. Like, n- name me, outside of Bumble, name me another company that's been able to do a successful flywheel on dating product. I mean, they, they're just really, really good. I like uh, whenever you hear that Facebook's entering something and it doesn't take off and they yeah. have that amount of attention, I think that that's a pretty good indication that there's something special there. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, let, let's so background out the way. Why don't we dive on into uh, Q-Rate. let's do it? That's, that's let's, the stock let's get right into the fun stuff. Yeah, so the, the ticker here is uh, QRTEA. Uh, Q, you know what? I'll just I'll, I'll that's the ticker, that's the company. I'll let you dive into who they are, what they do, and why you're oh, attracted man. to them. Uh, so look, fundamentally, I think a lot of people that listen to you understand the Malone Liberty Complex. Um, I have watched the company, I guess I've been going to Liberty Days now for like three years. And the first year that I went, I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's sort of an interesting business. And I noticed just that most of the room wasn't that interested in it. The two people that were interested were women. Um, Most of the guys, when uh, Mike George started to talk, were like checking stock prices on their phone. And I just sort of thought, this is an interesting dynamic. And I walked out of the room and I thought, like, it's weird to me that people sort of went blank during that, just given, you know, what Malone, who Malone is and whatnot. And you know, for people that don't know, it's QVC, and then they bought HSN. Um, they also bought Zulily as, uh, I guess, it was a, I guess, a, a how would you say, a backwards integration? They were acqua hiring talent, I yeah, guess is what yeah. you would say. Um, and basically, where I would say we are in the sort of story arc of the business is Zulily really flopped uh, as an acquisition. They took a a write down last year of, I think, just north of a billion dollars. They had gotten outside of their core competence and tried to sell a bunch of products to people. Uh, They have since tried to refocus that part of the business. I think that's sort of to be determined whether or not it can work. And then uh, the HSN integration has been a complete mess. And they're still guiding to hitting the synergy targets. But uh, when they acquired HSN, it was hemorrhaging customers. This is a business that's like characterized by very sticky customer relationships. And I think from my sort of understanding, HSN was a lot more promotional and sort of driving sales and getting excitement going in the moment. QVC tends to have a little bit more uh, relationship-based approach. And I think that the combination of trying to swallow a large organization, having a different sales strategy has really caused uh, some problems with the with the integration. And you combine that with pretty poor performance in 2019 and a whole lot of leverage. And uh, I think we find ourselves here with the stock price. Yep. So uh, look, I, I think that's a nice jumping off point for the most common question we got, right? Like the most common question, I think the, the easiest question for anyone who's going to look at Q-Rate Q and say, I, I'm thinking about investing this. Hey, this company, uh, it's got a decent bit of leverage. I, I'm sure we'll talk about the kind of financial engineering that's going on in a second. It's got a decent bit of leverage. Home, It's a home shopping network over cable, right? Like that's what it is. There's tons of cord cutting. Instagram shopping's popping up, Amazon direct shopping. Amazon actually launched a QVC competitor that they folded a couple of years ago. I think they're going to relaunch one at some point, but like the future is online and Q-Rate is for the most part over cable. This is melting ice cube. How can you invest in a leverage melting ice cube? Why, why do you think the market is kind of off on that? So I guess that fundamentally what I think QVC is prepared to do is sell items on a screen like at its core yep and i think that the cable bundle has provided it with an efficient 
ca- uh, customer acquisition vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, on a go forward basis, that may look different um, and, and probably will, right? I, I think the idea that the cable bundle in 10 years looks like the cable bundle of you know yesteryear is zero, right? Um, we'll see if Zaslog gets his way and we get the skinny bundle though. Um, <laughs> that's a different Zaslog, discussion. For those you don't know, is uh, the the CEO of Discovery Communications, which uh, you know, right. Discovery Food Networks. It's it's another in the John Malone portfolio of companies. Yeah, and and it's one of these super fan type businesses. At least that's how they market it. Um, one of the things that I do think is is a, a nuanced distinction, but important, is QVC doesn't generate uh, income from taking from the bundle, right? It, it requires an active participation in a channel. So some of these bundle channels that I worry a little bit ab- about, um, I have no idea whether or not um, people are actually watching Discovery or whether or not it's just on at a dentist's office. And I don't know once you can measure the uh, return on spend a little bit better and get a sense of whose eyeballs are actually on a screen, I'm unclear how discovery morphs. I have a higher degree of confidence saying that the user base that is interacting with Curate's channels is actually like engaged. Um, Now it may be on in the background, but their fundamental revenue generation is from someone doing something active like ordering a product. So I think that's important. Um, I don't know whether or not they're going to be able to pivot this business into the customer acquisition sort of like, uh, cost per click, uh, version of the internet, um, and and sort of screen-based distribution in that, uh, sort of realm. Right. I, I think that that's certainly something that Mike George would say he's investing in performance marketing and this and that. I, I, the, it's to be determined, I think, is the best that you can say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I don't think the bundle is going away over the next five to seven years. And I think that their customer base is probably more likely to use the bundle than not. So I'm not sure that the ice cube is going to melt as quickly as other people think. But I don't disagree that on a go forward basis, the business probably look, needs to look a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm going to come back. I come back to this, but we, we started mentioning the ice cube is going to melt a little slower than the market. <laughs> so why don't we just t- talk a little bit about um, a the valuation and b I think what attracted to you, what had me kind of relook at this. I, I've openly admitted I come to this a little biased. This was a curate. You know, I saw the same investor days you did over the past couple of years, and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. And then the trends got way worse than I ever thought. Uh, but why don't we talk? valuation and the financial engineering component that I think really opened your eyes and caused you to kind of revisit and invest in the situation. Yeah. So I, I think that maybe a decent way to frame what I see today is like, I looked at QVC. I was looking back through old write-ups. Uh, I looked at it in April of 19 and then I looked at it later in the year and both times I passed. And the reason that I cited in my write-up for passing was like at the valuation I needed to have too long of a view on duration, right, of the asset. And I know that it was like cheap, but in these buyback stories, the thing that I don't like is you still are fighting, like if they're spending 
$500 million a year in a buyback against an eight and a half billion dollar market cap, you've got to, I mean, you know, that's got to go on for a long time to really make a dent. So I didn't, for the reasons that we're discussing about how does this business pivot, I sort of didn't know what the business would look like 10 years down the road. And I never really thought that I could handicap that. And what I think that they may have pulled off or I just got suckered into is it looks to me like they have shrunken the duration of the equity to somewhere between four and six years. And that is sort of an easier call for me to think I can make. And then on top of that, I think that they've signaled um, that they're not just going to be stubborn and buy in shares into a falling price and that they're willing to listen to the market and maybe pivot their capital return strategy to get as much as possible back to shareholders, which if it is an ice cube, I think mitigates your downside. So why don't we talk about the, so you mentioned they're shrinking the equity duration, right? Just dive up for a second into what, what specifically are they doing to shrink this equity duration? Sure. So uh, the stock, I, I'm going to go by stock price. I'm sorry about people that want me to cite market cap. Uh, I realize that I probably should be, um, but we'll back into the market cap roughly. Yep. So they returned uh, $1.50 in cash. So the share price was roughly $10.50. I think it was like a $4.6 billion market cap, but don't mm-hmm. hold me to that. Um, so they returned $1.50 a share in cash, and then they distributed a preferred uh, equity instrument that was $3 a share. So um, basically, they took approximately 45% of the market cap off the company by rejiggering $3 of the capital structure and then distributing one fifty in cash out to the shareholders. So what was a $4.6 billion company is today a $2.6 billion, though admittedly more levered uh, to yep. the common equity. Yep. So this is some classic financial engineering, right? And I think when I think financial engineering, you know, Q rate, as we mentioned, it's in the John Malone. It's not technically part of Liberty anymore, but they do the Liberty Investor Days. You know, it, this is part of Liberty. Greg Maffei is here. When when you say financial engineering plus John Malone, you know, I think most investors think, oh, you can be a stock market genius. John Malone turned $50 million into literally a billion dollars through a complicated rights offering financial engineering thing. So is that kind of what attracted you to this situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, it was. I don't think that that sort of click were, uh, thought process is going to work out as well, but I guess what, what I fundamentally see here is a business that I think can continue to generate pretty strong free cash flow, uh, to common, even if it's 500 to 700 million a year, which is what I put in my write up. I think it could still be a little North of that, but let's say it's that. Um, I, I see a business that is trading at anywhere between three and five times free cash flow to common. Now they do have to pay down debt, right? So it's yep. not like just, you can take all this out and you know, it's not free, uh, and it's more tenuous because it's levered. Um, I spent a lot of the time in my research trying to get comfortable with why, you know, it, the old Buffettism, let's say the market. Uh, closes for four years, why are you comfortable owning this equity despite the leverage? And I kept coming back to the fact that the customers are so engaged 
and I'm I'm worried about a couple things. One, they they recast a slide that they showed in the 2019 Investor Day that showed 99% customer retention, mm-hmm. and they recast that in June, and they're showing 97% customer retention among like their super user base. Yeah. Now, the way that the math works on it, they have also recast their conversion from new to best customers. Um, Just taking a step back for people that don't know, the way this business fundamentally works in my mind is you need to find 33,000 people that are rabid fans every year. And then you need to figure out a way to convert of your total lead funnel, 90,000 people to rabid fans by year three. So figure it's somewhat linear. They go 33,000, 60,000, 90,000, something like that. Um, I, that cohort math is like extremely important, right? I think if, if those retention numbers start to fall apart or the uh, lead conversion doesn't continue as it has in the past, um, then I am completely wrong and out of this. Uh, that that would be what I'm really watching. But what I have noticed is a lot of sort of like the, I, some of this I might be really naive, right? But some of these margin pressures that came in last year, and I think some of the problems that they had in some of the categories uh, were merchandising related. And in my opinion, probably, a function of trying to focus a little bit too much on HSN, the integration, and maybe losing a little bit of what mattered to the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I what I have seen is that the engagement numbers that drive the sales have really not fallen off. And that's why I'm sort of comfortable swimming against the tide. Uh, yeah. If if the engagement numbers were falling off too, then I would I, this would be a non-starter for me. You know, I agree with you. And, you know, when I was looking at this and making mistakes on it, one of the things that really attracted me was exactly what you're saying, right? The engagement numbers for this thing are off the chart. They've got this cohort of rabbit fans. But let me push back on you a little bit here. So, I were, you know, the Jennifer Lawrence movie, uh, Joy, which was based on the, the woman who became, you know, a multi-multi-millionaire through QVC products, if I remember correctly. I know of it. I do not. I haven't watched it, but I also know Lori Grenier, so I have okay. a general sense. Either one. You know, I'll be honest, yeah. I haven't watched it either. I only <laughs> Wikipedia it. But, you know, my, my thing is, uh, I think people watch, you know, a la Martha Stewart or Oprah or something. They watch for, they get attracted to the personality. Like, I don't think anybody's watching because it's QVC, though I I do think people really like QVC. I think people are watching because I love this host on QVC. I love Joy. I love Martha Stewart. And and my worry is that going forward, you know, like QVC was the distribution platform and it was the best distribution platform for 30 years, 20 years. Going forward, I worry that QVC says, hey, I can get you access, instant access to 60 million cable customers of whom... 4 million watch us and 2 million are super rabid fans, right? Uh, going forward, does Joy just say, oh, well, I can just get that over TikTok in two seconds. Like, I'm really talented. I've already got a million people following me on Instagram. I'll just set up my own Instagram store, cut out the middleman, keep all the profits for myself. And, and that's really easy. And Q-Rate kind of has a death of talent. So they're almost in a, a double issue where the best talent decides to work for themselves which means their viewership becomes lower, which means the second best talent decides to work for themselves and they get in this kind of death spiral. Does that make sense? Do you feel comfortable with that risk? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is a, something to watch for sure. I guess that what I, how I think about it in my head is, um, attention is just like extremely disaggregated right now. Right. And I think that the objective re-aggregator of attention, I mean, this is like just Ben Thompson stuff right here. Right. But is like basically Facebook and Google, why can somebody else not enter the market? And I think that where I come out on it is I don't think that like merchandising product and setting up distribution uh, like and video is as simple as it may seem. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are some influencers for sure that are going to be able to do it. Whether or not those influencers are the people that can take all of the attention sort of remains to be determined. Whether or not curate can buy some of that influence remains to be determined to me. And I, I guess that one of the things that I keep coming back to is we're serving like a 50 to 55 year old woman here. I, I think that the risk that we're talking about is probably like a 10 to 15 year risk. But if it takes that long to materialize, I think that there is a chance that the equity gets its money back by then. And one other thing, I guess, as you were saying that it kind of clicked with me, I think you and I have talked about Fox before as well, right? And yeah, Fox, you know, Fox News, one of the big worries I think a lot of people had was Bill O'Reilly leaves and Bill O'Reilly is kind of the headline host. And, you know, very similarly, you think people watch Fox for the hosts and the personalities. But I think what you've seen is they watch Fox News for Fox News, right? And O'Reilly leaves, Hannity takes over, Tucker Carlson takes over. The, the platform is so powerful that these hosts, I mean, they're still big once they leave, but with Fox News, like they're not as big as when they were on Fox News. And obviously, you know, having the president be your biggest watcher is helpful, but with QVC, maybe there is something to, hey, you can leave and you can do great on your own, but QVC, everything's going to be professionally done and prepared for you. And there's absolutely value in that, you know, like this podcast would probably look a lot better if we had professional people doing it and stuff. No way. No well, way. When you got two hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I do think there's something that, and hi, Hey, by the way, like you pop on, you're talented, you pop on and boom, instantly 4 million people and we can start monetizing them for day one. So I, I do think there is something to that. So one woman that I spoke to, uh, and this is N equals one, right? This is not like a, a representative of 30, but I have screened like some of the message boards. And I did, uh, I, when, I, when I talked to this woman, she said, I go to QVC because like I go to Amazon for things that I need tomorrow. But if I want to put face cream on my face, I want to trust what the product is and who's selling it to me. And I trust the people at QVC. And I said, what do you think about their prices? And she said, well, they, they have unique sizes. And when they run their deals, no one can beat them. And I just think that maybe there is uh, some of that that's underappreciated by the market uh, because it's focused on both legacy media distribution and also sort of what's going on in retail. And I see a business that could have a shot at actually pivoting to the future I don't know how they do it with these brands. These brands feel sort of stale to me as a younger consumer. Um, but again, I, I think that they've got a sticky enough core to get far enough to the point where the common is okay. Uh, subject to Greg Maffei doing what I think he'll do, which is return a lot of capital to shareholders. Great. So just one more thing on that pricing thing. It kind of reminds me of 
uh, and we've mentioned Herbalife on previous podcasts a couple of times, but for a while people would say, oh, Herbalife is protein powder and they charge 30% more for it. Why would you buy Herbalife when you could? And what they didn't get was, hey, a trusted person is coming to you and you're kind of buying them to get the story and stuff. With QVC, it's a trusted host is coming to you and saying, hey, this face cream is what works for me. I really, I use it uh, and building that personal connection. So maybe you could save a dollar on Amazon, but you kind of buy it from QVC because you've got that connection. Am I thinking about that correctly? I, th- I mean, that's the bet that I made. Yeah, I, I was watching it. Uh, you know, this is what it does, right? I end up watching it and I'm listening to a caller and it was interesting. She ended the call. She said, like, I feel like you guys are my friends. Yeah. And I, that, like, I, that matters. And in surveys, people identify the QVC host as family. Yeah. That's like not uh, just some passive relationship. That's like a true bond that people have with this product. And, and that's sort of why I was comfortable ultimately making the bet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. So let's go back to capital allocation. So, uh, you know, I'm going to link to both of our write-ups. I, I thought your write-up was great. My write-up obviously came with a little baggage to the company, but my, my worry here is the financial engineering here. Like I think val- investor event-driven investors rule number one is when John Malone does something, pay attention. Right. But uh, I think a lot of people are mis- remembering like John Malone putting money into companies. And when I looked at Q rate, one of the things I said was, Hey, you know, over the past five years, these guys were insatiable about buying shares when the shares were at $20 per share. Now shares are at $10 per share. And for some reason, they're taking money out of the company, right? Because paying a dividend and paying this preferred stock dividend is actually taking money out of the company and putting it into their pocket. And when I look at that, I say, like, to me, that doesn't scream bullishness on the company. That screams, I want to get money out of here. So how do you think about that? So I guess that the best the best answer that I have is like when on at the 2019 Liberty Day, um, what was it? Was it Lionsgate, right? That that Malone sold. Yeah. Like when when he talked about selling that, um, I I think that he would sell something if he really wanted out. Um, I don't know that he would be in it for the dividend. My sense just from listening to Maffei over the past, you know, 18 months or whatever on this entity is um, he was tired of buying shares into a falling share price. And I would not be shocked if Malone and him got together and they were like, what is a more creative way to shrink the equity? Cause that's what Malone like always talks about, right? He doesn't really talk about like reducing share count, but he's always like shrink the equity. And in my mind, this is sort of a creative way to do it. I don't think they care at all about the preferreds. I don't think that they can issue preferreds and sell them to the market tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is a way to do an LBO uh, and sort of like compress the equity duration without having to, uh, like they're not going to trigger any more debt covenants, right? Because all this subordinate to the debt. So they don't have to worry about like restricted payments if the leverage goes above three and a half times mm-hmm. or, or whatever they would have to worry about if they were issuing more debt. Um, and I think that maybe this is their shot at not just spending a bunch of money into a share price that gets no respect. And I, I do think that there's some merit to that. I also think that there's some merit to what you're saying. I, I don't think that, um, you know, looking at looking at them taking capital out of the business is arguably uh, not great. On the other hand, 
they're not leaving a bunch of capital in it to do another HSN or Zoo Lily acquisition. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's, it, I just, I think, um, like, I don't want to romanticize these guys and I don't want to say like, oh, Maffei can do no wrong. But um, I, I think that, uh, and I'm sorry, Greg, if you listen to this, but I do think that like some people think he's really arrogant and I've, I've watched how, how he handled some of the the issues in March and how he treated Flonk and LSXMA. And I sort of understand that they got themselves into that mess to begin with, with, but um, I thought that that was a pretty fair structure for both sides. And I think that maybe this is them saying like, maybe this isn't the asset we thought it is. And if it's not, we're going to give shareholders the chance to get out a little bit of capital today. And if it is, we're going to buy in shares on the common and we're going to delever and people could do really well from here. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, I think all that makes sense. And, you know, I do agree with you on the flunk and uh, LSXMA. Like I, I think they, they had a bad hand and I think they dealt as fairly as they could with it. I, I you know, I just don't know how they would have done anything differently there given everything that was going on back when it happened. I guess the the only difference I would say here is like, you know, Malone with Lionsgate, he only owned like 3% of the equity after the Stars deal and he didn't control it. Whereas like That's with, fair. With, Q, with Q-Rate, if he looked at this and said, you know, I think this is a zero tomorrow, he can't, what's he going to do? Like the moment he files a form four that says he sold on the open market, the shares are going to tank. The only, the, the only ways out for him are, you know, direct TV selling it to AT&T or something or for him, I, I actually always thought that he would kind of LBO this himself and buy it out and then just enjoy the cash flows as a private company. But uh, th- that's the only difference there, I would say. Yeah, I mean, dude, I think they could flip it to Amazon. It, you know, a lot of people have suggested over the years, like Amazon or even Facebook, both of them could benefit because there are real skills, right? Like selling selling is a real skill and their production value and everything is a real skill. Amazon, uh, Facebook would make sense. You know, the other thing, and I was going to say this for later, but uh, one thing I was a little disappointed by the money coming out is like Q-Rate doesn't have the best track record of acquisitions at this point, you know, both HSN and- uh, I'd say pretty bad, to be honest. But I, I, I am always a little disappointed. Like it's a Malone vehicle and I could see strategic optionality to them acquiring something like a Stitch Fix. I think Stitch Fix is too big for them at this point, but- you yeah. can see a lot of synergies between Stitch Fix and QVC or something. What do you think about acquisitions here? I mean, if they were to do some foreign channel that's established and it's sort of just like tucked into what they currently do, I would be okay with that. I think they've gotten, they've bitten off a lot and yeah. I'd like to just see them execute the HSN transaction and I'd like to see that. I mean, they think another 200 million of synergies is coming from this thing. I'd like to see them go out and really make a push at potentially acquiring customers through, you know, whatever Mike George refers to as performance marketing. I, it seems like customer acquisition cost in any other language, right? Um, like, I'd like to see them try to pivot this business to the internet yeah. and, and see if they can make it work. And, you know, I, I have some sympathy to their argument that like, Everybody wants us to do it tomorrow, but our customer isn't there. So I, I do think they have some merit in what they say, but it would be nice to see them lean into that a little bit more. And they've said they they've said they will. So time will tell. Yeah. No, I agree. It takes time to do these things, but I'm with you. Like 
Mike George, I think uh, the everything I've heard about him is the employees love him. He's a really good manager. You know, obviously it's not super reflected in the share price or maybe the past couple of years of performance, but I, I'm with you. I'd love to see like if he's this good, launch the app that's going to monetize 20 year olds or something, you know, turn this yeah. from, uh, take that cash flow from the core business and give some of it back to shareholders, but also turn this into a growth story with kind of the next great QVC for the 21st century. Yeah. And I think, look, this is part of what I think is, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of a blessing and a curse with Liberty. Like, you know, that you're going to get uh, people that try to optimize cash flow in assets but I also think that they're susceptible to be outflanked by what they perceive as dumb competition. Yeah. That's actually just sort of playing a different game. Um, and I, I do worry that uh, they're running it a little bit too much for profit today and not enough to try to like pivot the asset to what it could be. And while I think that that may mitigate my downside, I think that it sort of could really reduce the upside skew on this too. No, I, I, th I think you're 100% correct. Let's talk about position sizing because this thing is going to be, you know, I, I think we can use rough numbers and say after this dividend, it's going to be about four times levered and you're buying it at five times through the equity, right? So 80% yeah. leverage, 20% equity. Uh, I, you know, obviously that creates a lot of upside because if this thing's worth six instead of five X, you've just doubled your money, right? Which I, I think there's reason to believe this could be worth like, when I was underwriting a couple of years ago, it was kind of at 7X and I kind of thought this is an eight to nine X business, which that's a lot of upside when you've got four to five X leverage. Now it's even more. Uh, but how do you think about the position sizing here? Uh, well, today was a fun day as it traded down. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was more bullish on the transaction. I, I would say like, as far as what's my baseline for the entity, right? I think that that's a good place to start on this. Uh, I think that the distribution of outcomes for the terminal value of this business is pretty wide. Yeah. Um, and I think that the downside of that distribution is mitigated one by like the debt markets, a insatiable appetite for, for more debt. Um, I think that they could refi the 2023 notes tomorrow if they wanted, but it's prohibitively expensive to do so. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I think that they're going to have some things to play with and some ca like, I think they're going to have to delever a little bit. And then I think that they're also going to have the choice to return some capital to shareholders. I'm banking on probably more capital returns than, uh, others might be like might consider prudent. Um, but I think it's what they'll probably do, especially if the share price stays down here. Um, so I, I will tell you, I was bigger than I would like going into the event. Um, I will probably have this settle somewhere around a 7% position um, because I don't think if I'm, if, if my analysis is right on the customer and I'm half correct on Maffei and the strategy here, I don't know that the downside is as big as perceived. Uh, now that said, I may sell pro rata into some of these buybacks because I don't know that I want to own more and more and more of an entity that could go to zero. Um, so I think part of the thing that's tough about this investment is like charter was buy and let it run. And like, I'm, I'm sort of a uh, Tom Gaynor once said, like you find the right horse, just ride it. Um, yeah. charter is much easier in that way. This I think is going to require some active management and, 
I think it, at somewhere between five and 10%, like I said, I think I'm settling on seven. If I'm right, I think that I could do some, uh, I could, I could meaningfully, uh, add to my performance and in a scenario where things go really wrong. Um, I, I mean, I guess if tomorrow it's a zero and I'm completely wrong, then 7% really hurts, but I think I could probably recover from like a 3% drawdown, uh, yeah. and not, you know, sort of take my licks, but I'm not trying to make some hero call on this. No. And, and you know, it's something I I've been actually Elliot Turner on like the second podcast said something and it's kind of resonated with me. Like I'm like you, I, I'm really attracted to these infrastructure type things, right? Like, Hey, here's a cable company. Like they've got 5,000 subs. I think each sub should be worth $5,000, but it trades for $4,000. And I like like that hard, like I own a customer, I own the fiber, but like he said, Hey, if you're going to buy something like go, go try and find something that can be a three X if you're right. Right. Like don't yeah. be up 20% if you're right, be up three X if you're right. And like curate the thing, uh, you know, I, I like about, and I like what you're pitching is, Hey, I've got a thesis. I'm convicted. I, I think there's a lot of data that backs you up, but it's also, if you're right, this isn't, it trades for six and it's going to seven. This is, it trades for six. The cash flows last two years longer than the market thinks, and it's going to 15 or something. Yeah. Or I mean, like my real, like dream, you know, like my blue sky scenario is the shares stay down here. It keeps generating cash. They buy in the shares and then they flip it to someone like Amazon. And then all of a sudden, like, that's like a real, real home run. Uh, I'm not underwriting that. I think that that's uh, a silly thing to underwrite and bank on. But I do think that um, there's just a lot of attention on the downside. And I think that within the common and within the lack of covenants in the debt package, uh, that three and a half times leverage ratio is something that you got to watch. And, um, you know, because that gets into the restricted payments and what they're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just think that there's less downside. I mean, I don't just think. I mean, I, I worked enough to have the the opinion. I think I I, I can warrant it. But I, I truly believe the market is sort of a little bit too hung up on some of the headline numbers without digging a little deeper. But I I mean, I could be wrong. What uh What are you doing with the preferred stock you got? Are you holding on to that? Or are you, do you? No, I already sold it. <laughs> How's it trading the market? I didn't even look at it. Uh, was it like one? It was at like one hundred three or one hundred one. I, I think okay. I sold it at like different slugs at one hundred two fifty to one hundred one seventy five or something like that. But and par is hundred. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. no. I, I mean, I'm, look. I'm, here's the thing, man. I I don't understand if my entire thesis rests on what Maffei can do with the common and how lax the debt markets are to then take uh, a note like a, a part of the capital structure that has limited upside but is lower in the uh, liquidation preference than the debt. I, I don't understand the risk reward on the preferred, like I understand the risk reward on the common. No, I, I'm 100% with you. And just for our listeners, uh, as part of this, you QVC was at, Q rate was at $10. You got about $1.50 in cash and a $3, if I'm remembering correct. Preferred, the preferred pays an 8% dividend and it, it's uh, they have to pay it back in 2031. Um, no, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, hey, you know, this thing's levered four times. The preferred is sliced 3.75 to four. If you're right and this works out, the common is a double and the preferred just paid 8% over. If you're wrong, the preferred and the common are both zeros. So seems like, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what you would liquidate to get the preferred. 
uh, like there's no two ways out on the preferred in my no. mind, right? Like you, the business either works or it doesn't. So if it's working, the common's the place to be, in my opinion. I, I can't, I, honestly, you know, I, I used to work at a distress firm. There, I can't think of a time where there was a common that took zero and preferred had any meaningful recovery, you know, and especially something this levered. And by the way, all the incentives are, because all the incentives become, forget about the preferred, turn the dividends off, yes. lever this thing up, Try start shooting some hail marys because if it works, the common pays off, and if it doesn't, it's zero anyway. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's how I see it too. And I, I just don't think. Uh, I don't think like everybody came out of pocket. I don't think Mike George came out of pocket in March because he wanted the preferred. Uh, yeah. I, I think these guys want the upside. The other thing, and I, I don't know how much you thought about this, that I think is interesting. You mentioned earlier, like a traditional cable channel, ESPN or something, you know your cable distributor is going to pay them $5 per sub for the right to carry their channel, right? The interesting thing about QVC is QVC actually goes to the cable channel and says, hey, here's, this is too much, but here's a dollar for every sub that you put us in front of because you put us in front of a million subs, we're going to be able to monetize 50,000 of them for much more, right? The yeah, interesting that's right. thing that I've kind of thought about is as you go to Roku or as a lot of customers start, as these super fans start downloading the QVC app directly, right? Like actually their customer acquisition costs, you know, I guess to get people to download that, they have to do Facebook, but actually a lot of this operating cost comes down because they no longer have to pay the cable company. So that, I never fully put a bow on that, but that's something I've been thinking about. It could, um, I, I don't know how to, I, I have thought about the issue. I don't have a good answer for you because on, on the one hand, there are there's arguably like the Roku downloads. I think it's 2.4 million downloads driving 480 million minutes viewed or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's 200 minutes or, or wait, 200 hours, right. Or something. What am I, or 480 million hours viewed. So it's 200 hours, uh, a download or something like that. I mean, the idea that everyone is watching that uh, at the same cadence is, is almost like that's not possible. Right. So yeah there are some super fans that are finding them through alternative channels. Um, the YouTube video, the, the YouTube views are terrible. And like I, I did uh, like a average of the HSN hosts, like followers on Facebook, that's atrocious. So like, I don't know the puts and takes of you have some super fans or whatever that are on the app and now you don't have to pay the cable channel as much versus they have to buy clicks on Facebook. The other thing that I think is sort of interesting to contemplate, but I don't have a good answer is their conversion ratio right now requires like one and a half percent conversions from new to best customers. Yep. What if Facebook and Google can deliver them a tighter funnel, but all of a sudden they're their conversion could go to five to 10% or something like that. Uh, you need a lot, like this business is so niche that you don't need that many shots on goal if you can convert. But I don't have a sense of like where those numbers can lead. I just know I'm going to watch them. Yeah. The other thing I've thought is interesting for the future is, you know, it, as you said, curate fans watch because they're super fans. Uh, but right now, like, they really only can do, you know, you watch QVC one and two and they, they've got two channels. But it is interesting to think like, let's say you're a super fan and what you're really in is to their home decor products, right? Like they could build a custom channel around you that shows 24-7 home decor products and doesn't show any of 
the clothing or anything. And that would get you more engaged, probably get you more purchasing. It, it could like kind of build off that moat. I, I haven't fully thought about that, but I do think like the customization of the internet does, you know, anything with super fans, I think the internet lets you serve those super fans better. And like history shows, it lets you monetize them a lot better. And I haven't seen a lot of that yet here, but I do think that could come. Well, I, I mean, this is where I think you and I see the the potential of the, like, I think it's interesting that now we're reading about like, oh, boutiques are using video to drive sales. Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, selling over the screen is something that people really like these days. Um, I don't see that leaving and I don't see how the destruction of the retail sort of like landscape as it currently exists is a net negative to QVC. What I am unclear on is everything that you just said, I agree is a huge opportunity for them. I don't know if these guys are the guys that can capture it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to say that like disrespectfully. I just think that's the question. And it comes back to the thing I said originally where like I worry the next Joy or Martha Stewart or everything is not from QVC. I worry that they start their own channel or there's just 5,000 of them that are fragmenting all the attention and like QVC isn't capturing that anymore, as you said, because they're not the right person to grab it. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I guess that what I suspect they would say is they are going to have a team of merchants on the ground trying to find compelling stories that they can come out and pitch to their super fans. Mm -hmm. And I think that that that's like real. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, um, like department stores have always had to compete with boutiques. And when you drive down the road, there's a lot of reasons that people choose different stores for different things. Yep. Uh, it would be really nice to see QVC get a little bit less comfortable with just being the place that 55 to 65 year old women go and to try to like really lean into what I think is a pretty compelling strategic advantage. I just don't know if like, I think that they're investing some through the income statement here. I know that that's sort of silly to say in this entity, but I do think that if they really wanted to milk it for cash, there's, I don't know, 200 million or something like that, but that's off the top of my head. I that's, you know, don't quote me, but um, do they have it in them to, to do a $500 million investment or a couple $500 million investments to show like, Hey, we're really going to try to prove this thing. I don't know that they do. Um, and like I said, that I think mitigates the downside, but takes some upside out too. I, I'm with you. Like if, and if you look at, uh, Liberty's history, it's not that they're not willing to invest. If it's cable or into hard assets, I think they're willing to invest, but you know, off the top of my head, investing into like soft, intangible things. I, I can't think of a recent example of them. You know, I, I mean, they, they bought serious and they've obviously done a lot, but I can't think of anything where they've really been like we're going to take the cash flow down to zero for two years because we think we can really start a flywheel. And uh, I just don't know if Q rate would be the right, the right place to do it either way. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost not even in their DNA. Right. Yeah. So um, I mean, I, I know I just keep saying it, but that's, this is how I think about it. I'm like, man, it sucks because I would really like to have one of these like compounder type internet. This is shopping of the future, but I do think it introduces, especially with this leverage, like, the possibility of a very bad outcome. Uh, and actually, if I saw it, if I saw them do that, it would probably make sense to back off the position size a little bit because I think the upside could grow so much, but so could your downside. Yep. Yep. So um, I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings about it. Something that has, 
you know, and I, I hate talking anything negatively about these guys because I really like them, but something that I've always sort of been bothered by is their perception of Spotify not being a competitor yeah. to Sirius XM. And I'm like, I don't see how you could possibly say that somebody that's dominating share of year is not a competitor. I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you, you know, now I do, I do kind of agree. Like one of the things, Greg, cause Liberty uh, has a controlling stake in Sirius, Greg McVeigh, you know, uh, pretty much in charge at this point, he'll come on and he'll go on to CNBC and I'll say, I don't understand like Spotify signed Joe Rogan and they're up 10%. And, you know, I do think it got a little si- silly where every time they did a podcast deal, the stock would go up another 10% and eventually like, you know, 10% on a hundred billion dollars is a lot of money, but it, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, I listened to Spotify five hours a day and I was, Spotify is one of the ones I really kicked myself with where it was so clear, like, you know, the timeshare, like show me another app that's front page of your screen that people are spending multiple hours a day that has a hundred million credit cards across the, across the globe. Show me another app that has any of those and trades for less than $200 billion. Like they're working on I know, man. I'll tell you what pisses me off is that when uh, when Eck redid his his option package or his pay package, I can't believe I didn't buy that day. It was like it's still kicking myself for that. And Francisco Oliveira was in my ear the whole time, being like, "Dude, we got to buy this thing. Like Disney would take them out. It, it makes like a ton of sense strategically." Um, and here we both watched it rip. So <laughs> I don't know that it's gone. To be fair, it's still only a forty five billion dollar company. Um, yeah, but. It's hard hard for me to get my head around terminal economics on that business. The, you know, I, I try not to kick myself when I miss something that's up a lot, but there, there's just a couple in my past, and Spotify is one where I, I wrote on the blog tons of times. I'm like bullish on this thing, and for some reason, I, you know, may, maybe I just need to get over. Hey, yeah, it doesn't trade at five times price earnings, but you know, when you can see the ball that clearly and it looks that cheap, maybe you just got to swing. One last thing on uh, QVC, and then uh, I will let you go. This has been awesome. QVC, one of the things I was surprised about, you know, it probably makes sense in hindsight, but their results have been incredible during the pandemic, right? Like people are home and it turns out when people are home, they want to watch QVC and they want to buy stuff on QVC. Uh, Everybody, man. There's no restoration hardware. Restoration hardware is the fish that got away from me. But I uh, I could not see them selling out like that, but whatever. Uh, uh, Anyway, back to QVC. So, you know, nobody thinks that the pandemic results are going to last forever, right? Like fingers crossed at some point we're back to normal life, but how much of a boost, ignoring the short-term cash flow boost, how much of a boost do you think this is medium long-term where maybe some people who didn't come in uh, have discovered QVC and they're going to generate a couple extra fans? Like how, how are those results tracking so far? I think it's huge. Uh, and I think that that's something that some people are missing because of the way that people interact with the business and the ability to increase shots on goal, for lack of a better term. I mean, let's say that this year, rather than 33,000 fans, they convert 45,000 or 50,000. Like, it, that's a big, big, I, I mean, I know, I understand on a million and a half base or 1.8 million or whatever, it's not, that's not like going to make or break a company. But um, I think it destigmatizes the brand in people's mind a little bit. I think it opens them up to what they're delivering. And I, you know, I asked QVC, I said, will you price match Amazon on this? And they said, no, we won't price match. And I was actually pretty pleased to see that because I think that the reason that they're saying that is like they know that they can't beat Amazon at some price match ship mm-hmm. fast game. So they're in it for the relationships. So 
you know, I, I do think a lot of the business probably came from the Cornerstone brands, which uh, for those that don't know, it's like a catalog group that came from HSN, which is, um, I'm going to blank on it, but Ballard Designs, Frontgate, uh, and then like two other mm-hmm. uh, brands. Those probably don't have the same sort of like customer stickiness attributes to them. But um, I, I think that this is a real tale. And I think it's a good thing that, I, I mean, I hate to say it's a good thing that happened to them, but for their business, yep. uh, I think it's a, it's a benefit. No, and, and actually, I think the most powerful anecdote you said on this whole podcast was when you asked them to price match something, they said no. And that means they're in it for the relationships because they're not going to match Amazon on price, but they can absolutely win by having the rabid fans who they know they're there for the relationship and monetizing those. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Last question I ask everyone. A- any other guests you'd be interested in hearing on the podcast or anything? Oh, man. Uh, if you could get Connor Leonard out of his shell, I'd love to hear Connor. Uh, does Find Me Value, has he doxed himself yet? You know, I have uh, I have emailed him and uh, been like, he, he was the guy I, I kind of wanted to have as the first guest on, to be honest. He, he's resisted so far, but I have a feeling. Uh, weak. I have a feeling He'd he's be a good going gift. to him at some point. He'd be a good guest. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, I really like Francisco Oliveira. I think he goes super deep on stuff. Um, oh, I'm going to have him on when uh, Mandalorian season two comes out. So we can do part all right, then, good. And then part just, oh my God, baby Yoda. Good, man. Uh, and then, you know, I, I know that you talked to Science of Hitting. He's going to come on. And um, I don't know who else, man. There's so many good ones out there. I just, I, I, uh, I feel like FinTwit is, uh, it's so weird, but I feel like it's like a work family uh, and there's so many good ones. It's in a so. good place right now too. I think uh, for a while it was overwhelmed by just like memes and just everyone dunk, dunking on people, but at least the parts I traffic in, I, I feel like it's a very supportive and good community right now. And uh, you're certainly a part of that. Uh, it's been great having you on. You're going to have a standing invite whenever you've got a new idea, just come on. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I think people are going to be surprised by how much they're interested in uh home shopping after this podcast oh man i hope i didn't lead anybody into a dark dark place (laughs) fingers crossed man but hey thanks i appreciate it and we'll talk soon yeah man it was nice talking to you have a good one